Welcome to the Virtual Word Rounds, a surgery podcast that helps you answer those burning questions you never had a chance to ask by the bedside. All right, welcome back to episode two of the Diverticular Disease Series on the Virtual Word Rounds podcast. If you haven't already listened to episode one and you don't know anything about diverticular disease, we suggest you go back and have a listen before going ahead with episode two. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into a classic presentation of diverticular disease, diverticulitis. So guys, as we learned last time, diverticular disease is usually asymptomatic and doesn't need intervention. But I think it's somewhere around 5% of people develop diverticulitis, which is when diverticular become inflamed or infected. So what is diverticulitis? How do we identify it and how do we manage it? To help answer these questions, I'm joined today by clinical mastermind general surgeon, Sergey. Hello, Sergey. Hi, Rosie. Uh, it's always a pleasure listening to your introductions. They're absolutely <laughs> amazing. Thanks for, thanks for that, Rosie. No worries. And we also have with us again today, Lauren. Lauren is a very impressive second year medical student who also heads up the Surgical Society at Notre Dame. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Rosie. Very excited, as always. So, Lauren, I'm going to start with you. We have a patient come in and we suspect that they have diverticulitis. Let's talk about the history. History is a very important part of the medical assessment. I was told today by a doctor that if you get the history, a really good history, you almost don't need to examine the patient. I don't know if surgeons would agree with that, but um, but <laughs> it made me realise how important the history is. So, Lauren, what kind of history questions are you going to ask this patient? What things might you need to know that will help get you to a diagnosis of diverticulitis? Yeah, so we make our way through our entire history in a nice systematic way, starting off with our history of um, presenting illness. So in this patient, most likely going to be pain. And so we're working through our classic Socrates. So when it started, um, what its character is like, anything that makes it worse or better. Um, and most commonly in diverticulitis, you are getting the left lower quadrant pain. Um, it might have been present for a couple of days and it's usually kind of mild to moderate pain. Um, and they may have had it before if this is a another bout of diverticulitis for them. Um, you're also going to screen for um, any rectal bleeding, any vomit in your, or nausea, any blood in the vomit, um, all of your classic kind of GI symptoms, um, as well as obviously asking past medical history, medications, social history, family history, all very important. What you said there makes me think that pain and the description of the pain is going to be one of the most important um, things to explore in this presentation. The lower, sorry, the left iliac fossa, is that the only location or is it just the most common location that you'd get pain um, in this presentation? Yeah, so it's the most common because the diverticular usually occur in that sigmoid column because we were saying that it's the narrowing and so you have greater pressure here. Um, however, it can be suprapubic um, or the right iliac fossa. Um, it, it's not hugely specific to that area. And I guess if you have a really complicated presentation, maybe with a perforation or something that's looking like peritonitis, then you're going to have all over pain and, exactly. and um, all over abdominal pain. When we're talking about uh, pain for uh, anything uh, related to the viscera or the gut, 
uh, we talk about uh, initially you develop a visceral pain, which is non-specific, and then you develop you develop um, as you as the inflammation progresses, you inflame the peritoneum, and then you get site-specific or localized pain. So the say it's very similar to say presentation of an appendicitis, where you get non-specific central. Uh, abdominal pain with the um, diverticulitis because it's mostly left-sided your initial pain is going to be hypogastric so suprapubic sort of uh, below the belly button pain is going to be non-specific and then as the inflammation progresses and the peritoneum gets inflamed you get localized uh, peritonitis uh, which will then localize the pain to either left or right side or suprapubic depending on where that segment of inflamed diverticuli is actually located and and butting against the peritoneum lining okay that's a really good um, distinction i think so that kind of vague non-specific pain is when it's more of a visceral or like organ pain and once the peritoneum is involved you're going to have that sh that sharp located pain that that is i guess more somatic in nature that's correct and one other thing on history that a lot of people forget to ask but don't you know just remember that the typical diverticular or diverticulitis patient is going to be elderly female with comorbidities don't forget to ask them about previous colonoscopies Okay, it's very important because if they've had a colonoscopy within the last three to five years and their last colonoscopy showed diverticular disease, then, I mean, first of all, you've got your answer. But most importantly, it rules out, almost rules out a possibility of something more sinister going on. That's a really good point. So looking back at things that have been done previously, colonoscopies, would imaging be like previous um, CT scans or anything like that also help in, in rule those things out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if this is a frequent flyer patient and they have a, a bout of diverticulitis every sort of six to 12 months, then you may be able to find it on the system. And uh, these days, it's it's a lot easier to, you know, contrast and compare the previous imaging with today's imaging. I think we've got a pretty good history. Lauren, did you have anything to add? Any other um, points that you'd want to explore? Or shall we move on to exam? I think the only other thing that came to mind was screening for your B symptoms or fawn that a lot of people use. So the fever, anorexia, weight loss and night sweats, um, particularly because last time we talked about um, the importance of ruling out bowel cancer. So it's another good one. Excellent. Okay, so we've gone through our history and we're thinking this sounds like diverticulitis. We have all of the um, little things going off in our brain for diverticulitis. So let's talk about examination. How are we going to examine this patient? Lauren, we'll start with you. Well, we start off with our ABCDEs, make sure that the patient is well enough to actually continue with the examination in the first place, I suppose, um, and making sure that they're also hemodynamically stable. If they have PR bleeding or something like that, then you want to make sure that you're attending to that before you settle into any history or exam, I suppose. Very good point. Yeah, taking your OBS, um, assess assessing whether they're um, stable enough to continue. Um, and then from there, you're going to go into your GI exam. We're starting with our GI exam. 
I think the first thing I always like to um, ask when I'm starting a GI exam, remember, I've only done a few of these on actual patients, but it's really important to ask if they are in pain. And as you know from the history, they've got some pain um, because that's the last place you want to start poking around. Well, I was going to ask, you know how like in your exam, you have to like look at the nails, you have to look at the eyes and you have all those kind of niche findings. Is there anything Mm. for diverticular disease, diverticulitis? Anything you should look for? When you approach a patient that, that needs an abdominal examination, I, I tend to try and approach it in the same way every single time. This way I don't miss out on, on signs because diverticulitis is only one of this patient's conditions. They may have signs of other things going wrong. For example, they may have liver failure and missing that is going to be a bit embarrassing and certainly can affect management. Uh, So I usually start with uh, you um, look at their hands. Uh, You can observe a few signs there potentially. Have a look at their their eyes, at their face. Ask them how they're going. Um, Ask them where it's tender, where it's sore. Is it sore everywhere? Can they move? See if they if if the movement is impeded by the peritoneum that they've got. Uh, can they lift their legs? Once you through a few of those things, you already have a bit of a connection. You've touched the patient. The patient has responded to you, to you. They have accepted that you're not going to hurt them intentionally, and then they're going to relax and allow you to examine the abdomen. When you examine the abdomen, you go through the same systematic process. You observe the abdomen, you look if it's distended, ask the patient, is it bigger than usual? A lot of our patients with uh, uh, obesity or being overweight, so that may well be their normal size of the abdomen, whereas for you it may be, you know, quite distended. Uh, look for hernias, look for caput medusae, look for uh, telangiectasia, you know, changes of uh, alopecia, all of those all of those things. And then when you eventually going to start touching the abdomen, start with the site where you know it's not going to hurt and start just gently, just very gentle palpation all over. And then once you've established where the patient is sore, you can start palpating deeper. You can check for your organomegaly uh, with the liver from right to leg fossa up towards the right costal margin for splenomegaly from right leg fossa towards the left costal margin, then you then you go and focus onto the site of peritonitis. So if it is a left leg fossa, you're going to establish that. You're going to establish how much it takes to, to cause the typical signs of peritoneism. Uh, and usually the least you do there is the best. So if it's if if the patient is getting peritonitis with just gentle percussion, just a tap tap, please don't go and do the rebound tenderness. That's going to make your patient lose all trust in you. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, don't forget to check for hernias, if I haven't mentioned that already. And then an integral part of um, an abdominal examination is a digital rectal exam or a PR exam. Um, and in diverticulitis, uh, it is probably necessary. It's not always necessary in the GI exam, no matter what some of your um, older uh, professors tell you it's not always needed, and you know, especially if you've got a, a young female patient presenting with uh, an ovarian torsion, you don't need to do a PR exam for that. Uh, but if you have diverticulitis on an elderly female, maybe there is some uh, history of rectal bleeding in the past, then doing a rectal exam can give you more information. It can give you, uh, it can tell you if they're constipated. And constipation can lead to 
a stercal diverticular perforation. It can tell you if they've got some bleeding. Bleeding is rare in diverticulitis. It's very rarely catastrophic, but it's all, almost always a concern. A concern for either ischemic colitis or ischemia. And also it can, uh, you can exclude some masses. Okay, so sometimes you can get uh, diverticulitis on top so, of a rectal malignancy, which becomes a big issue. And rectal malignancy is something that you don't want to miss in that population. Um, back to you, Rosie. I think that's enough on uh, examination. <laughs> that was so great. Thank you, Serge. Um, I think that really shows how much clinical experience just shapes your ability to to, yes, understand that the pathology is important, but we also really need to see the patient as a whole. So just to summarize, we're gonna do um, a general observation of the patient, start peripherally, build some trust, you know, touch their hands before you dive in and touch the sore part of their belly, um, um, and then hone in on the more specific location um, of, of the problem that we're dealing with today. Rosie. Okay, yes. Or you can just do a CT scan, I guess. <laughs> or just pop them in the scanner. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's right. Well, I think some some places in the world they, these days, the patients don't get to see the doctor until they have been scanned. Until they've had the scan. Uh, yeah, so that's that's yeah. that's that's quite interesting. And you know, history and examination are very powerful. They they're powerful because each patient is individual and the approach to managing this patient needs to, needs to be individualized. But as far as diagnosis goes, um, you know, CT scans are better. <laughs> okay, so we've, we've taken a really good history. We've done an examination and we've got, you know, all signs are pointing to diverticulitis. Is there anything we want to do for the patient before we go ahead and order a bunch of investigations and pop them in the CT scanner? Anything you can think of, Lauren? Well, I would think that if the patient is in pain, we want to attend to that. So thinking analgesia and how we can make sure that they are comfortable whilst they're waiting for their upcoming CT scan, as it is gold <laughs> standard. <laughs> Excellent point. I think that... Um, uh, it can be really easy to overlook that, especially if you haven't gone and spent time with the patient and seen that they are in pain. Um, and I guess also giving them some fluids so they're, if they have had diarrhea or they haven't been um, eating and drinking as normal. So fluids mm. and analgesia. How much, how much fluid would you give, Rosie? Or well, second week in a row that you've started grilling me, Serge. I think for an adult patient, we can just put up an, a, a litre bag stat. I think that's a Get good start. Going. Yeah, they, they're they going to be behind. Uh, they're going to be liters and liters behind. Uh, and it's amazing uh, what a little bit of uh, fluid and, and some analgesia do to establish the rapport. Um, you know, you're an intern in the emergency department, just do that. And the patient's going to think that you're the greatest doctor, doctor house themselves alive. I promise you. <laughs> okay, so now that the patient loves us um, and they trust us, and we've got their pain and dehydration under control. We can do some further investigations to really hone in on our diagnosis. So we always seem to start with bloods. Lauren, what kind of bloods would you like to order in this patient? First one is a full blood count. So here we're looking for things like your white cell count, so particularly leukocytosis or neutrophilia because of your inflammation. Um, we can also look at the hemoglobin if that's reduced from any bleeding as well as your platelets. 
Excellent. I think also we might want to do um, EUCs, so checking the electrolytes. This can be really important if somebody is a bit dehydrated. Is, is their potassium okay? Is their sodium okay? And also check in on their renal function. What else, Lauren? Next would be a VBG, not a blood. I guess it's kind of a blood count, um, but looking for that peripheral perfusion, which can um, be indicated by an increased lactate. And venous gas also can be quite useful very quick. Uh, most emergency departments have the machine, so can get back to you within 10 minutes. I guess on top of that, because we're dealing with the abdomen, we should also have a look at LFTs, make sure there's no um, liver failure going on, your lipase to check the pancreas, make sure it's not pancreatitis. CRP is great for another sign of inflammation. And then CMP, so your magnesium, phosphate, as these can understand, they can mimic some of the symptoms, um, some gastrointestinal pain. CMP stands for calcium, magnesium, phosphate, and calcium specifically uh, can cause uh, GI disturbances. While we're dealing with body fluids, we might also want to do... Um, your analysis if it's a female do a pregnancy test um, and then depending on whether or not there's uh, nitrites or white cells in the urinalysis you might want to do culture of the urine as well what about imaging what imaging might we want to do lauren well we've already established that ct is the gold standard and we can get rid of all the doctors because we just got the ct um, <laughs> but also we can think about x-rays particularly an abdominal x-ray um, but maybe a chest x-ray as well, an ultrasound or an MRI, but I'm not particularly sure how useful they are. Serge? Yeah, thanks for asking. So uh, CT scans these days are a lot more uh, accessible and available. And if the patient has normal renal function or if it's not too much impaired, then you do a CT scan with intravenous contrast which can give us a lot of information about the state of their uh, viscera and uh, about severity of their diverticulitis and their presentation. But in some of the places that I work, the CT scanner is not available overnight. And if you've got a sick patient coming, uh, a chest X-ray and abdominal X-ray is um, can be useful. It's, it's, it's a bit difficult to interpret uh, an abdominal X-ray uh, with diverticular disease, uh, looking for signs. But I guess if you do find that this patient has um, a massively dilated loop, central loop of bowel, then you may think that this may not be diverticulitis, it may be a sigmoid volvulus. Or if you find on a chest x-ray heaps of air under the diaphragm, then you may change your differential to a perforated viscous, uh, and most commonly that's going to be a perforated duodenal ulcer. So there, this may point you to in the right direction faster without having to wait for a CT scan. Now, ultrasound is useful in kids, uh, and it can be useful in some thinner um, uh, adults, uh, but kids don't get diverticulitis very often, but they do get a lot of other abdominal stuff, uh, so that's where it's mainly utilized. For adults, it's not as useful because a lot of the adults these days are going to be overweight, uh, and uh, the pockets of gas where that ultrasound cannot penetrate are going to obscure a lot of the picture. It is still used in uh, some of the third world countries, but in Australia, um, ultrasound for diverticulitis is probably not the most useful thing that you can do. Uh, an MRI, a magnetic resonance imaging, uh, is uh, can be used for diverticulitis. Uh, it is usually uh, reserved for very specific cases. Uh, for example, um, 
a woman uh, who is pregnant where CT scan is contraindicated. And just quickly, what kind of thing would we see on the CT to confirm that this is diverticulitis? That's a very good question. So you you look for uh, inflammation, and inflammation is uh, can be demonstrated in several ways. You can see thickening of the uh, of the of the colonic wall. Uh, sometimes diverticulitis flare up of diverticulitis can obstruct as well. So you're looking for signs of obstruction and pro- proximal dilatation of the colon. Uh, and we will talk about um, bowel obstruction, I think, in upcoming episodes. So I will I will uh, dive into that in a little bit more detail. Um, you look for stranding in the fat planes around the colon, which signifies inflammation. So when when the fatty tissues get inflamed, everything vasodilates, and you get hyperemia, and you also got get fluid sequestration into that space. So the fluid planes become quite hazy and fluid-filled. So you can tell that. It's called stranding, uh, and Mm -hmm. it is just sort of a bit of whiteness, white haze over where the blackness of the fat should have been. Also, you look for other signs of complications of diverticulitis. All right, guys. So we've done a really good history. Thank you, Lauren. We've had incredible input into what examination looks like. Thank you, Serge. And then all three of us have done a deep dive into the investigations to order um, that will help us determine that we do have diverticulitis. Next episode, we're going to talk about classifying diverticulitis, complications, uh, and also the main ways we treat diverticulitis. There are some medical ones and also, of course, surgical options for treating diverticulitis. Lauren, Sergey, thank you so much for this conversation. As always, I learned a lot and I look forward to chatting with you guys more in the next episode. Thanks so much, Rosie. See you next episode. Looking forward to it, Rosie. See you soon. Virtual Board Rounds is available wherever you get your podcasts. For updates, follow us on Instagram and Twitter or to send your thoughts, queries, concerns, comments, you can also email us at virtualworldrounds at gmail.com. Until next time, happy studies.